Good morning. Just want to thank everybody, first of all, for your prayers and support and love during this time. Um, as many of you know, my dad has been battling esophageal cancer these last four months. And a couple of weeks ago, we learned that it had spread to the tissue uh, lining the lungs. I don't know all about that, but apparently that's a thing. And so we went down this past week to spend a little time with him and help my mom. And the day we got there, he came home and began hospice care. And uh, over the week, he declined very quickly. And on Thursday afternoon, he went home to be with the Lord. So I'll be heading back to Baton Rouge tomorrow for a little while, kind of indefinite, I don't know. Could be a week, could be a week and a half, could be two weeks, I don't know. We'll just be there. Uh, But you're in capable hands. And I want to thank the elders. Um, Thank you guys for being so flexible. Randy, thanks for preaching last week. I watched. It was good. <laughs> it's a lot of work to get up and prepare a message and, and get up and speak, and uh, the willingness to be flexible and jump in to serve in, in other ways as well with all the things going on. Um, I'm so grateful to serve with a team of elders that it's not a one-person show by any means. Um, they've been so supportive during all of this. And I want to thank my brothers and sisters in Christ here. Thank you for your support. It means the world. And we're grieving, of course, but we have hope because there's something far better that awaits for my dad. There's something far better, well, not awaits. He sees it. But there's also something far better that awaits us. And so we have hope. Let's see now if we can move through this passage in Hebrews. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 11, 23 through 40. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness." became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, 
though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for something better. A better hope that awaits. A better future life. Father, I ask this morning that you would help us to see what your word has for us. That we'd be encouraged, we'd be encouraged by the scriptures. We'd be encouraged by the new covenant. We'd be encouraged by Jesus Christ today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So today, as I think is only fitting, I want to talk to you about something better. In this chapter so far, we've heard the testimony of the faith of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. As we've pointed out, what the writer of Hebrews is highlighting is not that these people were simply great heroes for us to emulate, though certainly there are parts of their lives that we could, but that each of their lives serves to point as an arrow to the greater and truer hero, Jesus Their faith is what the author has in sight. It is faith that looks to the future promises of God, namely the Messiah. And so in this forward-facing faith, they found themselves looking for that better country, as we read a couple weeks ago. Well, no, multiple weeks ago. We had another series in between. They found themselves looking for that better country. They found themselves looking for the promise of the Messiah and his future kingdom. And they were also looking for future resurrection. Today we'll see more testimonies, more arrows pointing us along the way. You know, I'm, I'm the type of guy that when I'm driving around, I, I appreciate when there's lots of arrows. I don't want just one arrow and then 14 miles later another arrow. I like many arrows because I need the reassurance that I'm on the right path. Um, And so I get frustrated when there's a detour sign and you have to keep driving another mile or two before you finally see where the detour is. Keep telling me it's coming. May the gospel have such an impact in our lives that our testimony serves as an arrow along the way for others. Many arrows. We read of Moses, but first what is highlighted is actually the faith of his parents. By faith, they hid him for three months, and the author says it was because they saw that the child was beautiful and that they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, this is not saying Moses was simply hidden because he was a cute baby, though I'm sure he was. But that his parents, by faith, decided to obey God rather than the edict of the king, the pharaoh. They saw that this baby was a gift from God. They loved him, and so they trusted God to keep and protect this baby that they loved, even if that meant placing him in a basket and floating him down the Nile River. They came to trust by faith the future promises of God, despite what they saw in front of them. Moses grew up, and he chose to reject the privilege of being the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. He chose to be mistreated among God's people rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In verse 26, it said he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, what did Moses know about Christ? 
And what does that have to do with Moses' rejection of Egypt? Well, the storyline, I've said this many times, the storyline of Scripture rests on the promise of the Messiah. The writer of Hebrews is showing in this simple verse how the mistreatment of Moses foreshadows, it, it, it points another arrow of the mistreatment of Christ. It points to Christ, who is our Redeemer. What is the reward that he was looking for? The reward of looking in faith to the promise of God, the Messiah, is really what this book has been all about. It's all about Jesus. He's the point of it all. He's the point of the entire Bible. He's our great reward. The reward is experiencing the promises that God has made in our life. But the interesting thing about Moses is that, as we'll see, he actually doesn't get to experience it. Not fully. Maybe a glimpse here and there. A taste of it. And certainly some, more, more than some others. I mean, he got to experience the glory of God in incredible ways. He saw the backside of God as he passed by. So he got bigger glimpses than others. But as we'll see, what the New Covenant Christian has is actually better. The Christian life isn't easy. We're faced with temptations from our flesh and the enemy. We at times are deceived by sin and we give in to those temptations. So even as Christians, we do and we will sin. You might say it like this. We give in to the visible. We give in to the visible things that we see, the temptations, the pleasures of life. We give in to those things. We're, we're tempted by what we see, not just in the sense of pleasure and satisfaction in those ways, but we also are convinced that this life is all that matters. Moses and these others were looking towards the invisible things. In verse 27, we again see this invisible nature of faith as Christians being in Christ and with Christ through his Holy Spirit in us, we are called to believe that the invisible is better. We don't see with our eyes that we are in Christ. We don't see with our eyes that his spirit is within us. But the invisible is better. And so we look at invisible things. We've seen that since the beginning of chapter 11. And we believe that the reward is greater than anything that the visible can promise us. And we prove this to be true in our lives. If the Christian sins, choosing the visible temptation, the Christian will feel miserable about it. Maybe saying like Paul, I do what I hate. The Spirit convinces us of what is wrong. And yes, sometimes we don't listen. Sometimes we're deceived by the lies of sin. And we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us to see as well. But when the Christian lives from the righteousness of Christ given as a gift by faith and does what is keeping with this new life, then the Christian is satisfied. 
Because all the other things, all the visible things in this life, any pleasure or satisfaction that they offer is just a moment. But what God gives through the life of Christ is truly satisfying. And so this reward is being able to enjoy God's life and presence through his spirit. It's experiencing Jesus now and in the future age to come through resurrection. Moses looked forward to that though he didn't understand it fully and though he didn't receive it in his life. Continuing on, we see that by faith, Moses looked to the Passover. And this directly points us to the blood of Jesus. The Passover refers to when God commanded Moses to direct Israel in Egyptian bondage, to sacrifice lambs and to paint the blood on the doorposts of their homes. The Lord would pass through and strike down the firstborn of Egypt, but he would pass over the homes that had the blood over their door. Jesus is the truer lamb, the truer Passover lamb. Sacrifice so that those who would apply the blood to the doorposts of our hearts by faith would not experience the wrath of God. And it's by faith. As we read through this section, we saw a total of seven by faith statements. I think in the whole chapter of chapter 11, there's 15 by faith statements. Four times here, it's been in reference to Moses. And as we're going to see now in the next few verses, three more references to by faith. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So by faith, Israel passed through the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, Rahab did not perish. Rahab, a prostitute. What's she doing here? What did she know about the covenantal promises of God? What did she know about the coming Messiah? I don't know. I don't know what she knew. I just know that God revealed enough of himself to her that she opened the door. She opened the door. That's, that's what faith does. Faith, a gift from God, responds to what Christ has done, and it opens the door. And it's all of and from God. The faith to open the door is from him. But it wasn't all sorts of great religious activity. It says nothing about whether she forsook the ways of prostitution before she opened the door. She didn't clean herself up. She just responded. She wasn't even of the Hebrew people, God's chosen people. She was from Jericho, an enemy of God. And she's in the line of Christ. She simply responded by opening the door. So Rahab, like Moses and like the others, they looked forward in faith to the promises of God, even though they didn't fully know what that meant. They simply took God at his word. They believed him about who he is, what he was saying, who they were, about his love for them and their need of redemption. But wait, there's more. Let's read verses 32 through 40. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, 
I'm not 100% sure on how to pronounce this one. Barak, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So I love how the writer starts this next thought out. He says, what more shall I say? For time would fail. Now, if this letter to the Hebrews is indeed a sermon written down, as some has suggested, I think that this is when he comes to the part of the message when he realizes he's out of time. And he has so much more to say. When you look at this passage, you can't help but see and admire the radical nature uh, of the lives of these people. All that they endured, all that they suffered, these people were warriors. They were dedicated and committed. And in this last paragraph, we really have two divisions of people. Sorry, two divisions of people. We have those in verses 32 through 35 who, by faith, experienced some extraordinary things. They fought great battles. They administered justice. They escaped the edge of the sword. And though the writer gives some names in these instances, he doesn't list all the names. But we can can see who he's talking about with several of these. When the writer says, stop the mouths of the lions, he's referring to Daniel. Though it was God who stopped their mouths. When the writer says those who quench the power of fighter, he's talk, fire, he's talking about Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They quench the power of fire, though again, yes, it was God. The writer says women received back their dead by resurrection. In the Old Testament accounts of the lives of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, there are two women, these are two separate occasions, where God raised sons back to life. The widow of Zarephath, when she met Elijah, and the Shunammite woman, when she met Elisha. The people here in this first grouping, they did amazing things, courageous things, and they experienced amazing victories. This second division of people we see here in verses 35 through 38, and again, I want to read this uh, one more time. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The lives of those in this second grouping go far different than those in the first group. This passage doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel, does it? That if you believe hard enough, you'll receive wealth and health and all those amazing things. No. This is about something far better, far more lasting. In verse 35, we have those who refuse to accept release. 
Scholars believe that this refers to a woman who lived during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucid Empire. I've shared the story a couple of times about the Maccabean um, uprising. The Maccabees were a group of Jewish freedom fighters, and they drove out the Seleucids and restored Israel. But before they won back their homeland, there was a really horrific period of destruction and terrible brutality. Antiochus, Epiphanes, or Antiochus, depending on how you pronounce that, he took over Israel, he took their temple, he desecrated their temple, he put a pig on the altar and slaughtered it, and he claimed to be God. A real swell guy. But he, he enacted his power in horrible ways, killing people just to enforce his rule. There's a story in the historical book of 2 Maccabees of this woman who had seven sons. And each one was killed in front of her. But not before being offered release. If they would only forsake God and worship Antiochus Epiphanes. And this mother encouraged each one before they were slain to hold fast because God was the one that gave them breath and life. It wasn't her. And one day... God would give back both breath and life. She was looking to a future promise of Messiah and the future promise of resurrection in his kingdom. Writers, perhaps thinking of the prophets when he writes of those who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, those who were stoned, sawn in two, and those who were killed with the sword, those who went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. But what we're seeing underneath all of this, both groupings here, is those who endured these situations, whether they received back life or whether their life was lost, all of these ones highlighted are looking in faith towards the future promise of God and of what God would do not their ideas or agendas for God, and not what they could do for God. So yes, even though they did amazing, wonderful things, their faith didn't rest in the things that they did. It rested in God's promises. So what encouragement do we draw from these men and women? How do they encourage our faith? Well, again, they're arrows, and they're pointing us to the Messiah, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, And as we'll see more of next week when Mike preaches on chapter 12, this cloud of witnesses, this hall of faith as it's sometimes called, is given to encourage you to faith in Christ and his better covenant and to endure in faith despite any circumstances you might face and will face. So whether you receive amazing things in this life, witness miracles, experience victories, whether you experience loss, pain, and suffering, there is a future hope for the believer that is better. And so these testimonies encourage us to endure. But they also encourage us in another way, though it might seem a little bizarre at first as we read through it. As wonderful as these testimonies of faith are, the other way they encourage us is by showing that you and I as New Covenant believers actually have something far better now. 
verses 39 and 40, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Those mentioned in chapter 11 saw only glimpses of what was promised in Christ, and they looked forward with future hope. The writer says that though they were commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. They didn't see the promise fulfilled in their lifetime. Now, in light of all that we have seen in chapters 1 through 10 of Hebrews, again, remembering the author of Hebrews didn't include numbers in his writing, this something better that I'm talking about this morning is all that we have in Christ in his new covenant, inaugurated with his blood. It's his better priesthood, his better intercession. It's his better promises, a better covenant, and total and complete forgiveness. It's the better promise of freedom from the law. It's the better promise of a new heart, a new spirit, and being made to walk in his ways. What we have can be summed up like this. The better promises that we have is the life of Christ in us. It's the life of Christ himself. Believer, Jesus has bonded himself to you. He has infused you with his life, just as the vine infuses the branches with life. So brothers and sisters, this is what you have. You have something better. Do you believe that? Do you believe that what you have is better than what Abraham and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Moses and David and all these people that we say are great heroes? And I'm not trying to say they're not, but do you believe that what you have is better? Do you believe that your forgiveness is better? Do you believe that your closeness and cleanness before God is better? Do you believe that your relationship and your ability to commune with God is better? It doesn't get any better in this life than Christ himself in you through his Holy Spirit. You have that. The Old Testament saints didn't have that in their lifetime. They did mighty things for God. They did believe in faith and the promise to come. And for those who did believe, we'll be with them one day. But you have it now and in the future. That's like a double-edged promise right there. When the author says in verse 40 that apart from us they should not be made perfect, he means that because of the new covenant, the old covenant promises have now been fulfilled. Those believers who were under the old, who looked forward to the future Messiah, will partake together with us who were under the new covenant of the same end-time perfection, sinless selves in deathless, resurrected bodies. We'll both have that, all of us. All of us who have believed, whether under the old or new, if we've looked to Christ, we will have sinless selves in deathless, resurrected bodies. And so, New Covenant believers, we look back to the cross and we look forward to the coming of Christ and his kingdom. So you have the life of Christ now and the promise of resurrection to come. So how do we have the assurance of such promises? What gives us confidence to say that these words are true? It's a lot of invisible things, right? 
Well, it's because of the resurrection. Every religion says, believe this or that, believe these stories. But only Christianity has a resurrected person, Jesus. The mother from the historical account of that time with the Maccabees believed in the resurrection, that death would one day be reversed, turned on its head. Tim Keller, who recently went home to be with the Lord, said this, if you, know, if you know Jesus was raised from the dead, then you are even more sure than that woman that we're going to get our hands back, our eyes back, our children back, our life back, our family back. And so we can say, Jesus lives, and so shall I. Death has lost its sting. And I can tell you, death hurts now. But it has been dealt a blow. And one day, will be completely vanquished. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jumping down to verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death will ultimately lose. Death right now is like a wounded animal writhing on the ground. But there will come ultimate victory. And sometimes death seems to win. Don't look to what is seen. Look to what is unseen. Look to the something better that the gospel gives us, Jesus himself. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Embrace Christ. Believe in his death and resurrection. That he is alive right now and that he is sitting at the Father's right hand. That he appeared to over 500 people. And that one day he's coming back. Believe in him. And death will turn to a resurrection. Everything that has gone wrong, all the struggles with sin, all the sorrow, all the pain, all the destruction from the fall will be undone and turned to joy and will bring glory to our Savior. Jesus lives, and so shall you.
and so shall I, and so shall my dad. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given us in Christ. Father, we thank you for the better promises that you've given us. We thank you for the life that's to come. We do feel this light momentary affliction and sometimes it doesn't feel so light. But we look in faith to that eternal weight of glory when our eyes will really see when we'll be able to look upon you and to be in your presence forever. Father, I ask that you would strengthen our faith. Give us each day exactly what we need to endure. Father, we believe that you give more grace. And we ask for that now. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.